A reminder that we're still looking for a researcher in residence. If you want to be a personal trainer for the mind of on-deck CEOs, head over to beyonddeck.com slash researcher. Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. Let's dive in. From the people who I've seen be successful in the healthcare industry, it's like usually some combination of either people who don't have deep expertise, but they're very fast at learning and also like very, they're definitely like asking more questions than making more than making statements, right? Like in the Mm -hmm. sense of they're low, they're very low ego about the whole thing and they're not trying to like yell like, oh, we're going to like, like disrupt this and this is how they're very much like absorbing knowledge, like trying to be empathetic about like things that they're tackling, even if they don't themselves don't have deep expertise. And then the flip side, I will say, is also the people with deep expertise who are very are more flexible in how they think about the process that they have been doing for like 10 plus years. At the deep end, we're creating a space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that inspire people to build. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of internet communities, creator tools, climate tech, longevity, and much, much more. There are no experts in uncharted territory, only pioneers. The deep end invites these trailblazers to turn their experiences into the knowledge and ideas that others need to start their own founder odysseys. Joining me this week in the deep end is Nikhil Krishnan, author of the Out of Pocket newsletter. Out of Pocket is making the business of healthcare easy to understand. Nikhil writes in plain English and complements industry analysis with memes and humor. We haven't done a true digital health episode yet, and Nikhil is the perfect person to provide us with an overview of the space. The first question we asked was probably the hardest for Nikhil to answer. I asked, what exactly is the problem in the U.S. healthcare system right now? And he laughed. The American healthcare system is uniquely complicated. Everyone thinks everyone else is the bad guy, and an obtuse system means that nobody knows what the best direction to row in is. Nikhil also points out that healthcare is an incredibly emotionally charged topic of any conversation. The industry has a fundamentally different risk-reward dynamic when the stakes are quite literally life and death. Still, there's reason for hope amid all that grief. Nikhil helps identify all the areas where health tech entrepreneurs might be able to create meaningful change in an industry that has been particularly ravaged by COVID over the past two years. Nikhil Krishnan, welcome to The Deep End. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with you. We've got 15,000 different angles we could go here, so I'll try to keep it somewhat coherent. But we'll start with the absolutely simplest way to do this, which is what would you say is the quote-unquote problem in the U.S. healthcare system? I know that's a really loaded question, but just- Starting with the hardest hardest question first. Yes. The the least simple, but seemingly simple. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's so much. I could like rattle off about this for hours, actually. I mean, I think in general, there's like, you know, um, there's some overarching concepts that I think are like very flawed in the system, right? Like we have a terrible- principal agent problem in this country where buyers and users of healthcare services and products are not the people who pay for it. So that sets up a bunch of weird, you know, kind of like weird dynamics. We're like one of the only countries that does employer kind of sponsored health insurance the way we do it here. And that is like the original cardinal sin from like a post-World War II accident. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I think is wrong. But I I do want to say that like there are some things that the U.S. healthcare system does right a lot too, and and some of them are, you know, some of these, some of the questions I think when people are thinking about the healthcare system are a little bit more ideological, right? Like, for example, how much time, resources, effort, etc., should we, you know, for example, spend on people with rare diseases? Like, we're one of the only countries in the world that actually 
um, has decided as a country that this is worth this is a problem worth investing a lot of time and money into and you know still best in the world care for people with things like rare disease but yeah i mean the u.s healthcare system sucks it's like you know, the prices are obfuscated there's a lot of people who make a lot of money because everything is so obtuse no one thinks that there's a bad guy everyone thinks everyone else is the bad guy so no one is like motivated to solve problem. Um, and I also think we just like directionally don't really know as a country which way we want to go with a healthcare system. If we want to go more top down, like Medicare for all style government regulated, or if we want to go bottoms up, more market regulated. Right now we're kind of stuck in the worst of both worlds. And I think um, that's just like getting worse over time. See, see I, I asked the unfair question, but it gave us three different places to go. So let's, let's start here. Most of the problems you just articulated aren't problems that I see as a addressable by a digital startup, a digital mm-hmm. health tech startup. Mm-hmm. You're not, there's no, it doesn't seem like, so in the sense that there was this decision or accidental decision to have employer-sponsored healthcare, sure. you have this intersection of like legislative questions. Where do startups fit into the set of problems you just described? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are certain areas where it's less ideological and maybe more like process problems, right? You know, in this country, we have a terrible kind of like admin issue, right? Where we basically throw bodies at problems whenever we can, um, and instead of like fixing kind of like the underlying tech infrastructure that might make that process a little better. So I think some of the areas that tech companies um, can kind of play a better role is one, completely redoing a process with tech kind of at the forefront. And like as a more tangible example, if you're doing something like, for example, uh, you know, maybe virtual primary care, right? Like the process for virtual primary care will look very different if you're building with the assumption that um, telemedicine is going to be the first touch point or your, you know, wearables or remote monitoring devices are going to be the first thing that flag an issue. Like that looks very different than, hey, I'm feeling sick. Maybe I should go see the doctor, right? Those are just two totally different workflows and processes, right? So one is kind of rewriting how those are done. Um, I think another area that tech can play a role, and this is kind of some of the areas I'm a little bit more excited about, is just sort of um, kind of understanding risk a little bit better. And that might be risk of like, for example, the patients that a physician works with, that might be understanding the risk of a pool of people that are being underwritten for insurance, et cetera. And I do actually think that now you can do a lot of, um, you can, the, the next wave is going to be a lot of, com- lot of companies taking on more risk in some capacity or building new kind of risk bearing products like insurance products. And I think tech can actually play a very meaningful role in areas like that. I mean, there's lots of other areas, but those are two that sort of came to mind off the top. I want to ask you a semi-philosophical question based on what you just said around we in the U.S. have chosen to say let's focus on sure. rare diseases. When, when you use words like chose, focus, what do, you, what do you mean by that? In the sense that there isn't a congressional vote on that topic. There isn't a referendum in a state like California. Certain actors, maybe let's say at a company or research institution made that decision, or maybe I'm getting the history wrong. How do you just conceive of that idea of choosing when it comes to like yeah. a very intersectional space like healthcare? Yeah, I I mean, choose might be the wrong, might be the wrong way to think about it. It's like a lot of these things happen as a byproduct of a of a system, like of other parts of the system that get chosen, right? So for example, you know, we have an employer-based insurance system. And so that means like commercially insured patients are way more profitable than the other, you know, types of insured patients. And because of that, that means that hospitals, uh, you know, use commercially insured patients to kind of like cross-subsidize the other patients. So I don't think it's like as intentional maybe as like when the like legislation was passed, like we're deciding all of these Uh, like butterfly effect kind of things that come down. But I do think it's when you get to a certain point of like, hey, we want to maybe change this part of the system. You have a lot of people who are going to be indirectly or directly impacted by this, who then have a say on if that change is something that we think we should do or not. So let's just take the um, let's just take the like drug example, right? Like there's a lot of proposals that have been, you know, pitched throughout history of how do we like lower drug prices in some capacity. And, you know, that's that's everything from like most favored nation policy where like, you know, we're kind of pegged to what other countries pay or whatever. But the reality is like, um, drug development is a portfolio of 
assets. And if you, you know, clamp down on some of them, the entire portfolio is actually going to have to change. And part of that is going to be things like maybe not investing in certain disease areas or whatever. And they're going to come out and basically talk about how this bill, et cetera, is going to impact us. And so we shouldn't do it that way. And, you know, patient advocacy groups for like rare disease organizations are also going to speak up. So I, I think it's a little bit more of like a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of decisions were made kind of mostly between like 1920s and 1960s. And we are now trying to figure out which parts of that system we want to change or not, but they're all so interlocked and interlinked that you change one part of the system and then or want to change one part of the system. And then people from, you know, another part will be like, Hey, this is actually going to like really screw screw with us. Like, please don't do that. Yeah. And I wasn't asking that in a gotcha sense, because it's just an interesting concept of your thinking of the way the broader technology space works, where if you look at let's say legacy systems resistant to disruption, higher education, you could have cited hotels, lodging, taxi industry. We wouldn't have a conversation along the lines of, well, back in the 1940s, the city of New York did this, this, or that. So to what degree does that unique part of healthcare make this a very resistant to disruption space? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I think for one it's definitely a way more emotionally charged decision than I think for a lot of other industries, right? The, it's a, you know, the risk reward of choosing wrong is very different in like healthcare than like picky hotels, right? And then the other part is that actually, I think the thing that the industry is really struggling with right now is trying to understand which parts of the system are commodities and not. And also same thing for patients, right? So, you know, if I'm taking Ubers, for the most part, actually, like the the ride sharing app itself is actually a commodity. Like I'm switching between Lyft, Uber, whatever, and just picking whichever price is cheapest because they're relatively interchangeable. I actually don't think the healthcare system nor patients really understand which parts of the current system are interchangeable or not. And that is also makes it really difficult then to, you know, price shop or or compete on 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 price or bundle stuff together, exact uh, etc. So like, you know, for example, getting an MRI done here versus like India, for example, right? Like I go, when I go to India, like I'll, I usually will just get MRIs done there because the price differential is actually so high and it's the same machine, by the way. So it's like, you can get it interpreted by someone in the US, but you just get the imaging done somewhere there. And the price differential is so high, it's actually cheaper for me to fly there and get it than actually uh, get it within the States. And that, that doesn't make any sense, right? Like the machine is the same, like why, like why is that the case, right? Um, but then you get into some of the murkier areas, right? So like you talk to some people and they'll say primary care is a commodity um, because their interaction with primary care is very much transactional, right? It's like, hey, like I need a refill on X med or like I need, I have, a, you know, I just need a referral to a specialist or whatever, right? Like they don't, but for other people, primary care is like really the, the point person for the entire rest of their care journey. And so, so I think one part is that healthcare is really emotionally charged. I think another is that, Commodities are in the in the system are a little less clear, and then the other thing is is I, I think there's actually like a lot of political sway here from large healthcare companies because they're usually like the largest employers in their given state, and therefore it makes it really tough to actually you know first of all even launch like state by state right that that is a whole that is a whole mess of stuff because if you want to. You know, let's say you want a large enterprise customer. That enterprise customer wants to make sure you have 50 state coverage because they're in 50 states. So it's like, okay, well, then it's kind of hard to just start in one place. Or you want to change some rules in a given state or whatever. Like um, a lot of the large healthcare institutions are, 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 you know, very politically active and powerful in their given states. And, you know, you're basically trying to say like, hey, listen, we want to like make this sector more efficient. That means you have to kind of have to fire a lot of people, right? That's like just natural evolution of that, right? And I think it gets really, and you know, you even see this with like Uber and, and Airbnb and all that, right? Like they're hitting the the political sort of system in their own ways. For Airbnb, it was hotel taxes before. Now it's like W2 1099 stuff for, for Uber and Lyft. But, you know, they're at the size right now where like if you, if they, like they are have some like equivalent footing compared to the incumbent people they're trying to, um, you know, fight regulatorily. And also they have a ton of like pol uh, uh, kind of like consumer, you know, they have a lot of like consumers on their side too. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if like you 
like spent any time in New York when Uber was um, when, when de Blasio was really trying to like crack down on Uber here, but they, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't make it for there. <laughs> they, well, it was a whole thing. Like there it, within the app, within the app, it showed you what it would look like if you were to like in quote unquote de Blasio's, you know, Uber. And it's, you know, it was like 15, 20 minute waits, which ironically is like what we're having now. Yeah, I was, was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally separate. But, um, you know, they, they managed to like get a, you know, a base like riled up about it. So for, for healthcare, it's not really the case, right? A lot of people have deeper affinities actually with um, like name brand healthcare institutions than they do with uh, any smaller companies. This takes us to now that we've basically defined the players, described some articulation of the problem we can never actually capture in just one episode. Let's get to the actual process that you've encountered when founders, investors, et cetera, have actually come to this, come to address what we're talking about here. You you did this really great uh, presentation that we'll link in the show notes, of course, called Six Stages of Healthcare Grief. Um, and the quote you had here is that this is what you've seen in around 90% of the cases when you've spoken with health tech entrepreneurs mm-hmm. with the clear, and I'd like you to explain this for a second, that, that you're not scoffing at hubris when it comes to folks. So can you explain why you had to give that quick <laughs> note beforehand? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people love dunking on people experimenting with stuff in the healthcare system and get like, you know, feel like pat themselves on the back when they're like, oh, they're just building like this thing that already exists. Like, ho, ho, ho. Uh, you know, my my thing is actually the whole thing with that with that post was just to outline a lot of the common things that you'll come across as you're building a healthcare company. And it wasn't to be like, like, these are all bad ideas. And I, you know, very specifically, I'm like, I want people to tackle these things in new ways. I just want to outline the ways that have already been tried so that you can, like, avoid some grief or at least, like, think about a strategy when you hit this thing. And, you know, I've, I've invested or start, have been advising companies that are literally antithetical to uh, that post and that they're, like, tackling one of the areas where I'm like, this is this, like, has not worked traditionally because I'm a huge, you know, I think people should be still experimenting and times change, things change. Like, you know, I'm sure for even like large companies today, like they're probably, most of them are probably not the first one to attempt that idea. So, you know, I'm a big fan of rapid, of of experimentation, but it's also, I think a little bit to like, you know, for a lot of founders, I think when they hit these roadblocks, they think it's kind of insurmountable or like they're the first person to hit it, et cetera. Um, And I'm just sort of trying to outline that, look, this is common. Like you're not the only person to hit this. If you have these questions, like there are lots of other people who can help guide you, um, you know, through that. Um, And this is just like some of the strategies I've seen to like tackle X, Y, Z problem when, when that gets encountered. Yeah. And before we get into the specific stages, I'd, I'd like to know, and once again, this is a very long history, so there's no way to possibly sum it all up, but I, I'm curious how, what lessons do you just generically take from the past 30 years of health tech ventures? My favorite fun story here is that, you know, Jim Clark, um, you know, co-founded Netscape with Mark Andreessen. Like there's a very good Michael Lewis book mm-hmm. about his quest to do his next thing, which is healthy on. It became WebMD. This was supposed to radically transform the healthcare system. Yeah, that obviously yeah. doesn't happen. So I think when you're referring to hubris, there are just these very specific stories of yeah. failed transformational efforts. So what lessons should we take from those failed attempts without just dunking on people in your words? Yeah. I mean, I think the big one is that like, it's really difficult to just take like, business model and product from other industry and replicate it in healthcare. Like, Hmm. I think there's a lot of just very different dynamics at play in the healthcare system, both from the consumer side, as well as also from, you know, the enterprise side, um, that you can't just be like, oh, we'll just do Yelp, but for healthcare, right? Like, it just doesn't translate the same way. Um, and the business models are not going to look the same. So I think, you know, I think there was a whole first wave of digital health companies that, um, we're trying to do this, right? Like, We'll do social networks for X and we'll do the rating systems for Y. And I think it's I think, transparency uh, and everything yeah, like all that, right? There. Like, yeah. and, and again, like I, I think it's good that people try to like personal health records were like a very common thing. Um, and I, I, I think there's like a lot of different parts of the consumer behavior stuff, especially that people take for granted. Like for one, um, the patient like. In the U.S., like people, the patient population is very heterogeneous, right? People have totally different preferences on how they want to experience the healthcare system. There isn't like one, you know, kind of like 
way. And also, actually in like a sort of, you know, twist in the whole thing, the people who require the most healthcare services usually have the least ability to pay for them, right? And like, mm-hmm. that's like a, that's like a demand price elasticity inversion that like you don't see in most other industries, right? And then the, uh, and then the other part is frequency of use, right? Like some people are constantly using the healthcare system, right? But there are other people who never use it and then suddenly like you have to catch them at the right time uh, for when they do need to use it. So a lot of the consumer behaviors, I think, and like willingness to pay and business models are just very different when you when you enter um, healthcare land. So another follow up here before we get into it, I keep yeah. mistakenly saying we're gonna ask the question, but to what degree do you think deep knowledge of the healthcare industry is necessary to build in it. So for example, we had a previous guest point out that, you know, Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, these were not transportation experts. These were not hospitality experts. The nature of software eating the world just made it that they could actually do that without that deep knowledge. Like to what degree, obviously there's a bit of that in healthcare by definition, but how far does that go? Um, I think like when you get to the like edges, like a lot of the deep science stuff, you definitely need expertise there. Like you're talking drug development, you're talking about, you know, sort of, you know, deep medical device expertise. I think there you like just need kind of like knowledge and it's kind of hard to come in um, orthogonally. I do think for the other areas though, that, you know, at least from the people who I've seen be successful in the healthcare industry, it's like usually some combination of either people who don't have deep expertise, but they're very fast at learning. And also like very, they're definitely like asking more questions than making more than making statements, right? Like in the mm-hmm. sense of they are low, they're very low ego about the whole thing. And they're not trying to like yell like, oh, we're going to like, like disrupt this. And this is how they're very much like absorbing knowledge, like trying to be empathetic about like things that they're tackling, even if they don't themselves don't have deep expertise. And then the flip side, I will say, is also the people with deep expertise who are very, are more flexible in how they think about the process that they have been doing for like 10 plus years, right? I think one of the things that kind of sucks about healthcare is that if you spend a lot long enough time in it, you kind of get indoctrinated, right? Like there's a little bit of this is how it's done because of how it's always been done like this. Um, and 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 I think part of it is also because like for people with deep expertise, it's like years of training before they're like actually like working firsthand on the problems. And so people I've seen who are like, I've done this for 10 years. I understand the rules of the game, but I also understand that those rules can be done better or changed thanks to developments in software or or you know, whatever, new legislation, et cetera. Like those people I think I've also, um, I've seen do really well. And actually those are the people who I enjoy working with the most personally too. Like um, th- those two type founder archetypes sort of, I think, um, you know, can go a long way. So let's get into the first of the uh, six stages. The first one would be, we should pay for healthy behavior is just totally contextualize all of that for us. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like, a, this is like a very common sort of like, why am I, why are my health insurance premiums going higher when like, I'm so healthy, like I should get benefits for, you know, taking 10,000 steps or whatever. Right. Like a lot of people are just like, it's crazy that we don't have more incentives for people to get healthy. If we pay up front, like we'll avoid chronic disease, which costs way more, et cetera. Um, and, you know, again, like it's one of those things that's nice in theory, like in practicality, there's like a lot of tough parts about it. And the real barrier here is that there is no entity who cares about long term patient outcomes. It's like the reality of it. Right. Like your employee, your you get your health insurance from your employer. You're once you switch employers, your health, you switch health insurance carriers. So they don't care. They don't care about like your long-term health, they care about you staying healthy for as long as you're with your employer, right? So they don't care about your long-term health. Um, even your provider, right? Like they're usually seeing you for, you know, generally an episode. And if they're getting paid fee for service, then it's not like they're, you know, it's not like their dollar amounts change if you don't change your behavior. In fact, like it might go up, right? In like a kind of weird, morbid, twisted sense. Um, so there's just no entity who who has a huge incentive to to, to offer stuff like this. And then the other part is also that, um, you know, for a lot of programs, they kind of just have mixed results. Um, even the ones that get, do get launched, you see a lot of healthy people take advantage of the benefit who are already healthy. 
Um, and then a lot of people who were not healthy, who are not taking advantage, right? So the, the number of people, the thing you're trying to find is how many people were not healthy or were not taking part in these healthy behaviors and converting into long lasting healthy ones. And the results are like very mixed and not super, you know, not super successful. So. So what's the track record then of a lot of these employer incentive programs? And are those in the, are those in the category of what we're referring to? Yeah, that's definitely one, right? Like people who, you know, employers who offer wellness programs or like, you know, points or rebates on their health insurance for doing, taking part in like the employee wellness stuff that they offer. It just like it, I mean, again, like based on the stuff I've read about it, it just doesn't seem to work. Like if people are not super interested in doing this preventively. Um, I do think that there's higher success rate in areas when it's things like you have diabetes here's how you can manage it. But the lead up to that in terms of you are at risk and you need to do this stuff is way harder. So yeah, it's tough stuff. AKA the preventive, the preventive part, which is where you see the opportunity, obviously is a difficult thing here. So next one is, you know, we need to build a new electronic medical record for patients. Let me just ask the very obvious question, web three healthcare blockchain. When I'm waiting for someone, I'm waiting for someone to grift and write this post. Um, you know, if it won't make that much sense, will be vibey. Like what's the take here? It's funny, actually, my next post is sort of about some like web three healthcare stuff (laughs) that I'm interested in. And I do start, I literally start off the post with like, listen, this is the most obvious one. Like everyone's going to talk about this one. Let's just get the patient record (laughs) on the blockchain thing, like out of the way. Um, You know, I will say though, that like, not like, I have no idea if this is like a web three thing or not, but it's like the, I think a lot of the interoperability rules stuff that's supposed to roll out in the next you know, whatever, five years, et cetera, where it's a data standard they've agreed to and like a number of data fields that are sort of um, have to be made available to third parties. I do actually think that that might, you know. Sorry, can you explain what that means exactly? Yeah, like right now, for example, if you wanted to get your medical record from, you know, hospitals or whatever, like it's kind of a pain in the ass to do it, right? It comes to you in like all different formats. It can take really Mm -hmm. long time for it to actually get to you. It's like they legally have to be able to give it to you, but like it, if it's not usable by any third parties, et cetera, it's actually not that helpful, right? And so basically this rule was passed where a like data standard was actually agreed to, like what it actually looks like, the file format that it has to look like, and which fields have to be included in this so that if you basically authorize a third party to get access to your data, it's a much more easy, seamless thing, essentially. Um, and this is like going to slowly roll out over time. And there's obviously lots of like political fights about it, et cetera. But if you do assume that like in some timeline, this does roll out, which like is probably, I think this is like one of the few bipartisan things that like people all agree to, then maybe this is actually the time to like build more interesting things on top of third party health data um, or more, you know, personal health record stuff. So, but I mean, just like for historical context, it's very hard it's been very hard to build um, build personal health records and, you know, Google and Microsoft and all have tried this and Apple is doing it now. And, you know, again, the tough part is that like patients do not want to input data themselves. Most patients are not regular consumers of the healthcare system. So they like don't really, they, they're not going to be using this personal health record very frequently and definitely not going to see value in paying for it. And then you also have hospitals who have been using these electronic medical records that are really the core of what your record is. So you need to have a way to get the data out of those systems and into whichever one you're talking about. And that historically has just been very difficult. There's, there's a lot of problems with trying to do it. But I, you know, I, I think there's some companies that have been doing some very cool new approaches to this. You know, companies like Citizen, which got acquired recently, which basically is working with specific types of patients that are high value to pharma specifically. So uh, cancer patients or, um, you know, autoimmune um, or neurology uh, and basically getting their records on their behalf and structuring it for them and making it much more easy for, you know, enrolling into clinical trials, et cetera. Or, you know, companies like Canvas, which is a new EMR, it, like it's is completely different, like 
user experience and is targeting a lot of these new startups that are doing virtual care because they're trying to figure out an EMR they want to use. And, you know, the existing ones off the shelf kind of suck and their engineers hate using them. So now VC backed care delivery companies are a big enough market that you can actually, you know, sell a new product to them. So next one would be, um, let's start with self-insured employers. So like what is a self-insured employer and then what are the implications of that? And actually, quick thing, could, yeah. and because we're halfway through the list, just to yep. give context, where's the grief part? Are you suggesting that for the first, <laughs> so like you, you you tried, you started with behavior and obviously this isn't literally true. I'm, I'm not expecting yeah, this to yeah. be a literal path someone's going through, yeah, yeah. but metaphorically at least, are you suggesting someone starts with the obvious thing, which is, hey, Marshall's healthy, pay Marshall, <laughs> two, Marshall can't get his health records. Okay, yeah. we can't do that. Three. Okay, now let's go to employers. Is that the way you should understand this? Yeah, I, I would. I wouldn't take it so literally. This is like <laughs> this is usually just um, maybe like depending on how much you actually know about how healthcare works, you'll probably enter at like different parts mm. of this, right? Um, I think for people who are like very new to healthcare, for example, they'll you know, the first thing that'll come to mind is like, yeah, pay people to be healthy. It's like version one of like the first idea that everyone comes to. Um, but it's not, it's not as, it's not necessarily as linear as like this whole thing makes it seem. It's just, it's just a great meme to like contextualize six different things I want to talk about basically. Yeah, of course. So yeah. Self-insured employers. Self-insured parts. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, for you, if, if you're an employer, you can basically have two different types of insurance arrangements. One is you um, basically outsource everything to like a third party health insurance carrier like a United or an Aetna or something and say like, hey, you handle not only the administrative side of this. So like yeah, n- negotiating rates with providers and, you know, getting the bills paid and all that stuff. But you're also going to take on the financial risk of all of our employees, right? Um, And we'll pay you a monthly fee to do so. So if you're a small company, um, you're going to do that, right? Because for one, you obviously don't want the admin burden yourself. But two, um, if if, if one of your employees gets really sick and you have the financial risk, you can go bankrupt, right? Because you're a tiny company. Mm -hmm. So for for United, obviously they're massive and they're it's a large pool, so they can bear that risk. Um, self insured employers is where employers are basically taking on the financial risk in themselves. So you know, essentially paying their employees' health bills directly, uh, and uh, you know, outsourcing different admin parts to um, to United just on the admin side. So like, listen, we'll handle the financial stuff, but you handle the like payment to doctors and whatever, like collecting, you know, co-pays or all that stuff. Um, so, so it's two different risk arrangements, but for the employers who, you know, are taking financial risks themselves, they are more motivated to try and manage the health of their employees because they're on the hook for their bills now. So um, they will frequently buy different health benefit solutions to try and manage the better, you know, give employees kind of uh uh, to make it easier for employees to kind of you know navigate the healthcare system and reduce their spend. So to not overstretch the grief metaphor here, <laughs> because uh, like we'll get into this, but what I love about your writing is it's a mix of like the memes and deep knowledge, a bit of shit posting. So <laughs> let's not take this too literally as you put it, but yeah. where does the story you just told go wrong? Because once again, the reason why I think this is a useful exercise is yeah. here's this articulation. It makes a lot of sense. Why sure. does the story you just told go wrong? Yeah. So the tough part is that one, like everyone tries to do this. And so those, those areas have become very saturated, right? Um, you, 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 there's, you know, there's only so many like telemedicine, urgent care providers that like an employer needs, right? It's probably one. Um, the other thing is that employers are actually, it's, you know, it's very concentrated. It's a small number of, of employers who actually cover a lot of the lives in self-insured employer land, right? It's like, I forgot the exact number. I think it's like 4% cover like 70% of lives or some some crazy thing. So there's not that many customers there either, right? Contracts are huge, but they're not that many customers. So again, like when it's channel saturated and they're not that many customers, it's tough. And then the other thing is also that employers, you know, 
they care about the stuff that affects um, that the stuff basically that's like very easy for them to see is costing them money. So it's really easy, for example, to see like, oh, surgeries are costing me money. I can see like how long, how like much that bundle that like whatever that episode of care is costing. And so therefore, like I know that I can, you know, can reduce it, etc. cetera. Uh, and the reality is that a lot of healthcare spend is not as visible as that, right? If you, for example, have a GI issue or a gas, you know, a stomach issue, um, it's like a lot of small amount of spend. So it's like you're seeing your primary care physician, like maybe you see a GI once, you get scoped a different time. It's not as like, it's not as like neatly packaged as some of these other ones. And so employers will have a lower willingness to pay for stuff like that, even though they are important, you know, kind of solutions that we need for the healthcare system. And then the last thing I'll just say is, again, like they are do not care about long term health outcomes. They care about how long the health outcomes are for while you are an employee of theirs. I also think I mean, I didn't really this is sort of separate from me writing about it. I also think it's like, you know, especially when employers are like the cause of stress for a lot of people. I do think there's like a certain irony to like you know, getting your like mental health benefits from your employer, right? Like there's, uh, you know, in my head, at least it's like those benefits should be independent of where you're getting your job, where your job is and they should be portable, right? Like when you leave that company, it's not like it sucks that you're going to get cut off from your therapist because they're no longer a network, right? So, yeah. That's a really... I'd never thought about it that way, but just intuitively, that makes sense to me. Like, I have access to all sorts of. Okay, this this is why this is a smart idea. I I had never articulated it this way, but that just makes sense because there are all these things that I could do through my employer yeah. that I just don't do, and it doesn't purely make financial sense not to do them. But you just yeah. don't do them because who knows how long you're working there. That's yeah, and this just goes into the broader conversation about like Americans. This is an American-centric point, but our relationship to our employers is quite different than it was 50 years ago. So this is an entirely different dynamic. Yeah, it's like, you know, you shouldn't be getting social safety net benefits from your employer. Like, I just think that's bad. Like, it makes people stay in jobs that they don't want to stay in because they need health insurance coverage or health benefit that the employer provides. And I think that's bad societally. So we got two last ones here, and this is one which, uh, and this is where we're getting into the more positive end of things. Like, let's make this process five percent more efficient. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so this one is basically like, you know, for a lot of people, they will go through this whole journey and they'll find one pain point that really resonates across their customer base, and they're like, "Cool, we're gonna like spend time just making software that makes this part." A little bit better, right? Um, you see a lot of, for example, like robotic process automation companies have, you know, sort of um, been built under this premise. Uh, or a lot of companies that are like, "Hey, we're going to take this department that you have, you outsource it to us, and we'll make it, you know, cheaper um, because like we can run it more efficiently using software or whatever." I think that stuff is, you know, useful and good. But I do, I do, I will say that I think making bad processes five percent faster is still a bad process. So, th- with that caveat, um, you know, a lot of these companies who are trying to make some process uh, slightly incrementally faster, I think, are useful for the healthcare system. Don't get me wrong. Um, I do just think that I don't know if those are going to be like system changing companies, for example, or like really um, introduce competition or anything like that. And I also think they'll they'll str- they struggle a lot with trying to figure out you know, what solutions are generalizable past a few customers that they build it for. You know, they tend to become really, really custom deployments. And like, it's like two or three customers that have this problem, but you can't like easily transfer that over to the rest. Um, So I think that part's really tough. And then the other thing I'll say is that um, if you are just doing the software part of this, then the purchaser and the user, again, like tend to be two different people. And so you'll sell into like a CIO or whatever at a company. And then finally, it comes time to deployment of the people who, you know, are actually on the front lines using this software, uh, don't want to use it, or you have to train them to use it. And they, you know, don't have time and, you know, doesn't get utilized properly. So even just like making the sale is one thing, but actually getting people who are supposed to be using it to use it correctly is, is difficult. So... I think what you just said is so useful because the immediate takeaway is, unlike the previous industries we're discussing, 
there is just no one size fits all healthcare industry. So obviously the taxi market in Baltimore is different than the one in New York City is different than yeah. San Francisco's, but conceptually it's the same thing. There's an app that you could deliver there, but when it comes to the portability, when it's coming to the fact that you even put it out, like there could be this service that actually only two or three places actually need. There mm -hmm. is no just like one big healthcare system, which is just like interesting to really conceive because that's how I think we narratively experience it. But at yeah. a literal level, that's just not true. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I was talking to someone recently about how one of the things that I think is really has been really nifty about like a lot of these app based companies or whatever. Uh, well, I, I just think one thing that like a lot of uh, companies have figured out is like, if we can provide the same exact standard of service, no matter where you are, that like, you you know what to expect when you, when you get there. Right. So like, for example, Uber, like when I go to another country, the Uber experience, like Uber has completely changed my life in those countries. Right. Because, you know, if I don't speak the language or whatever, it's okay because mm -hmm. the Uber process is actually relatively similar across the Western built an entire like business around standard hotels, like no matter where you are. Um, and I think, I, I think like Southwest or a lot of the airline companies have done this too. Um, and they're actually in theory, like you should, see something like that with healthcare stuff, but you actually don't. It's very, there are, everything is like custom, everything for everywhere, right? Um, I think one medical might be the closest thing to this, where if you go from like New York to San Francisco or, you know, anywhere else where there's one medical office, like you can, you know, pretty reasonably expect the same kind of, you know, level of service or what the process experience looks like. Um, I, I don't know. I just think that I just thought that was interesting because I think there's still more opportunity for stuff like that, especially especially when you consider the fact that like the pricing differences state to state and whatever, like away from your locale can be so meaningful that actually mm -hmm. like, you know, maybe doing things like medical tourism with kind of like a standard of care across the board is not the craziest idea ever, right? Like, yeah, like I would love to be able to get a, I don't know, like back surgery close to me and be top of the line care, but and for cheap, but the reality is that's not the case. If you suddenly made this, you know, more, you know, competitive market by introducing cross-state border care, then, you know, that might look very different. And you have seen this actually right now with things like telemedicine, right? Like getting mm -hmm. your, getting virtual care doesn't really make a difference where you are in the States, right? Or, you know, even abroad. That's interesting because it brings to mind what you were saying about how oftentimes with these fixes, the folks who quote unquote need them most are least likely to actually like take advantage of them. So what has the experience been when it comes to like medical tourism? So like I'm thinking like who would engage most in medical, medical tourism or spend the most time like price shopping, it probably would be folks who not just like are wealthy in the sense of them caring about that as the primary thing, but just aren't going to have like major chronic health issues in the same way. Like how does that play out? Yeah, I mean, I think most medical tourism, at least that I've seen, is largely cash pay transactions that are cosmetic in some capacity. So a lot of dental stuff, like hair transplants, um, you know, a lot of cosmetic surgery kind of stuff. And the other thing is that also, you know, in a lot of other countries, they are actually, you know, you know, better at a lot of these procedures than the U.S. because they're just done more commonly there. Like Brazil, for example, has like fantastic kind of plastic surgery departments um, for, for this exact reason. Um, so, so sometimes it's actually like quality of action is better in a lot of these other areas, but also the price, the price difference between the two is just massive. So I think it's a lot of cash pay, a lot of like one-time things you need kind of thing. But, you know, in the U S for example, one of the kind of places that I sort of keep an eye on, because I just think it's an interesting concept is there's a surgery center in Oklahoma uh, that charges cash pay rates for all surgeries. And so that's kind of like my benchmark a little bit where I'm like, okay, like if I were to like look at this versus what this would cost where I am currently, what's the price difference? And this goes back a little bit to the stuff we were talking about earlier, which is, I don't know if which one of these, which of these surgeries is like a commodity surgery that should be like really relatively easy to do versus a very complex thing that like I yeah. probably really want someone who's done a million, you know, million of these, which this is the like, I think another huge problem in healthcare is that no one can actually figure there's no one can actually figure out who's a good doctor. We just don't have physician level granularity. And like, yeah, this physician is really good at like X procedures or has seen like a million patients with Y disease, etc. It's this like, you know, when you're trying to find a doctor, it's this like ad hoc process of like, 
asking friends who may have seen a doctor like this or asking maybe your primary care physician if they know someone googling around it's like you know you know there really should be a place where i'm like hey i have this thing who is the best doctor who has seen a million patients that look exactly like me either demographically or disease wise or whatever i want to see them um, and we just that we just like, do not have that. Some companies are trying to build versions of this, which I think are you know I think are really important and necessary, but we just don't have that. It's funny that you give that example because at the start of the episode, you specifically kind of slighted Yelp for healthcare as a business idea. Um, so it, it just gets at the actual difficulty when it comes to the implementation part because that is an obvious thing. Like, why can't I just search GI treatment and then there's this list of 50 doctors. And I guess, why, 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 actually, why can't I do that? Okay. That so let me, that should be pretty straightforward. Let's just use the Yelp example for a second, right? Um, I don't even trust Yelp anymore for restaurant reviews because- It's actually the, a good point. <laughs> because the pe- because you have no idea the people who are giving the reviews. And also, like all the people giving the reviews like might have totally different tastes or whatever than you. And um, in general, like Especially for example, in health, I think even worse in healthcare land, like what you expect from the service provider can be very different than what the service is actually given to you. Not because like there's not not because like the patient is in the right, but because they expected something and like the physician told them no, right? So mm-hmm. you know, a physician's job is not to like tell yes to everything to the patient. Like that is not the role of a physician versus like a restaurant that is a little bit more of the case right you're supposed to be catering to like customers whatever like needs but for you know if you go to if i go to a physician's office and i'm like hey like i'm in pain uh can i get some opioids like it is not the physician's job to be like yes let's get those to you it's the physician that causes a lot of problems people doing that in the first place yeah so it's it's on the physician to be like yeah i don't think we need to do this test or like i don't need to think we need to do this because there's a risk to it and if you as a person are like man i really want surgery because it's like a one-time fix and your physician's like you're at risk and i don't think that's a good idea that patient can go and write a bad review about that doctor, even if the doctor did the right thing. Right. So you, you know, again, like the source of the review, I think matters a lot, but I think there are other ways to do this. You know, like I've always thought about having some sort of composite score. That's kind of like a combination of what patients think about the doctor and like with heavier weights to patients that have gone, who are, who have similar diagnoses as you combined with what other doctors think about doctors. So like more peer to peer review kind of thing, plus, you know, actual outcomes that come from things like claims data and like the sort of more objective kind of data sets that can, can tell some of the stuff. So I think that would be interesting. And it's like, it's a little bit more of a complex problem, but I don't think it's insurmountable. And last but not least, I guess we are a, this is speaking because we got not, not in a bad way. It's a podcast. It's good to go places, but we are, we are back on track with the final, um, stage of grief in no particular order. I guess we are a services business. Yeah. So I think a lot of, um, a lot of health tech companies eventually realize that like, despite the, you know, very, very attractive margins that software only businesses bring the the sales cycle the sale the sell is way harder than if you offer a more complete package and so you know tech enabled services companies i think have become way more in vogue in healthcare now but you know earlier uh, in the health, digital health cycle i think it was not really looked on fondly because of how capital intensive it was to start one of these businesses but you know building an entire company that's like we're building a new virtual primary care provider, if you offer both the service and the software itself, again, like you can rewrite these workflows, but you have to control both, right? Um, Or uh, if you are making the sell to a company that, you know, maybe needs more handholding, like large enterprises, you basically can offer what looks like a services company, but optimize in the back for with software. And so, you know, my, my whole, my whole point in kind of the, in kind of that section is that trust is sort of the most valuable currency in healthcare. And the more outsourcing that you do just in general, the like lower your trust kind of becomes because people, you don't control the experience, bad, you know, they'll hit bad experiences, et cetera. And so, you know, if you're, if you're trying to sell a large enterprises, offering an advisory component to just build that trust up is really important because then you can upsell different software products. Or if you're offering a service to, patients, 
then you want to be able to not only offer the tech that powers it, but also make sure that the workflows work for them and offer the services that work closely together with the software so it's not like a disjointed experience. So that's kind of the general gist of, of that. So, so for our final question, a subtext of this entire conversation has been our changing relationship with with work, employers, all of those things. Like you're wearing a CB Insights <laughs> sweatshirt for the uh, audio listeners here, but you yeah. don't work there anymore. You obviously are basically running like a business yeah. of Nikhil out yeah, of yeah. pocket. We'd just love to hear, you know, you, you've got you've got reports, you've got a Slack community, you have the newsletter. Just, I just love to hear just like in these last four minutes, just uh, like what, what, what is that? How is that working? How is that helping you understand the healthcare system better? All that good stuff. Yeah. The, there's like a hilarious irony of me leaving my last job and seeing how much health insurance actually costs when you're paying for it by yourself. That's what like, I was wondering oh the entire God. time we're having this. I'm like, are you, are you missing? I'm like, are you missing this whole, whole thing? Oh God. Yeah. The one, the one thing I deeply miss is, is you know, covered health insurance. Um, but for anyone listening, that does come out of your wages. That is not like a, you know, it's not like just cash in the hand. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so so what I'm trying to do with out of pocket is basically it's sort of twofold. It's how do I make it easier for people to understand the business of healthcare? So that's the newsletter they talked about. That is, I have a course coming out in a couple of months. It's like a healthcare 101 crash course, um, and you know, like the novelty shit posting products, like the children's book about clinical trials and card game where you have to avoid medical bankruptcy. But the whole gist of that is basically, look, healthcare is confusing. It shouldn't be. How do I convince my like super smart friends who are working on things like, you know, fucking marketing optimization funnels to come work on harder problems in healthcare? And I think a big part of that is just making it accessible for anyone to like understand how healthcare works. And so I'm trying to like chip away at that, not only make it accessible, but also entertaining, right? Like, um, mm. like I, you know, for example, follow Matt Levine from Bloomberg. His column is all about fintech and finance. And I don't care about finance at all, but he's so funny that I'm reading it because it's just entertaining and I'm learning a lot through that process. So I'm trying to kind of do something similar for healthcare. Um, and then the, the second half is how do I make it easier to start a healthcare company? And so, you know, part a big part of it, I, I think of it as like four separate problems, which is like, how do you get access to capital? How do you find co-founders and teammates? How do you find first customers? And then how do you lower the upfront cost of starting the business? And I'm trying to tackle those sort of piecemeal. So the Slack community that I run, the whole goal is kind of to make it easier for people to find co-founders and teammates because you're working on projects together and all that kind of stuff. Um, and also, like, you're more likely to find business ideas because you can see problems that are faced across organizations. And then also, you know, now there's now that there's more people in it, there's a lot of, like, potential customers of companies in it as well. And then on the capital side, you know, I've been doing some um pre-seed, seed stage investing uh, through a scout fund on the side. So trying to make it easier for people to get capital at what is like effectively the riskiest stage of company. And then, you know, the lowering upfront cost thing, like uh, whatever, I'll figure it out later. Uh, but the gist is like, you know, I want people, I want more people to come to healthcare because they're interested in tackling the problems and then easier for them to start companies when they want to do so. And that's the general gist of what I'm trying to build. Awesome. Super Rosad. Nikhil, thank you so much for joining us in the deep end. It's been a, a really great episode and uh, we really appreciate you joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Hope, hope it's, it's interesting to listeners. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.